Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 23rd, the fourth Sunday in Advent. It's a guest essay by Marilyn, Mary Lynn Robinson. Robinson is the author of three novels. In 1981, Housekeeping. In 2004, Gilead, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And then in 2008, its sequel, Home. She's also written four works of nonfiction. Robinson has lectured at numerous universities, including Oxford and Yale, and written for the Paris Review, Harper's, and the New York Times Book Review. Since 1991, she's taught at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. A guest essay by Marilyn Robinson called Our God-Haunted World. God is always present among us to heal and restore. The prophet Zephaniah tells us he's in our midst as our savior hero. And in his rescue of us, he's rejoicing. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. This extraordinary image of a divine exaltation resonates with the poetry of creation itself. The moment when, as scripture says, the morning stars sang together and the heavenly beings shouted for joy. The God described here as a triumphant warrior is the God of compassion in the fact of his triumph. He says, I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise. It was biblical Israel's extraordinary fate to epitomize human life on earth at every scale, as nation, as community, as wandering widow or beleaguered king. The grandest prophecy and the loneliest psalm will tell us that sorrow, which is truly to be lamented, has ended or will end, and the goodness of life will emerge again. The restoration of peace and righteousness is or will be a cause of profound rejoicing. <clears throat> Yet this assurance seems rather abrupt, coming at the end of Zephaniah's prophecy. Through most of the text, he speaks of disasters so dire that a modern reader might think only very recent generations could have been threatened by them. I will utterly sweep away from the face of the earth everything, says the Lord, humans and animals and the birds of the air. It is our privilege as moderns to know that such a thing might indeed happen. If it does, we will probably be right in attributing it in practical terms to our abuse of the planet, perhaps especially to our propensity for war. Christianity has always proclaimed that God in his grace takes the sins of humankind upon himself. And so he does here when he identifies his justice with the harm humankind has done and is liable to do. 
We know now that our worst potential sins and their worst consequences are easily within the range of human capability, and that this is true whether there is a God or there is no God and we are alone in the universe to, faint the, to face the blunt effects of all our centuries of greed and malice. At this point in history, we have learned that the harshest language of judgment may indeed anticipate our future, and that the hope we live in is in an unconscious intuition of an abiding life invested and sustained in this world by its creator. The prophets tell us that we are contained in an ethical cosmos. Choices have consequences. These are not, in the overwhelming majority of cases, choices we make as individuals. Though in the, in the degree that we are all open to the suasions of fear and hatred, or of greed and oppression, we are guilty of the evils that follow from them. Then the recoil of divine justice is the effect of the very contempt for divine justice that implicates humankind in its own suffering. But the God of Israel does not leave the matter there. His grace is the sacred difference between the grim story we could tell ourselves about the shadow war of human nature against everything that deserves the name well-being, and the story the prophet and the psalmist tell of the new heaven and new earth, somehow forever implicit in this wrong-headed and profoundly good creation. The Lord is in our midst. Rejoice in the Lord always. According to the Christian proclamation, God as man lived quietly in the world for more than 30 years before he called his first disciple, drawing no attention to himself or to his presence with us. His voice was not heard in the street. We must assume that sunlight was no lovelier those 30 years, or time less inexorable. The Romans, who made synonyms of order and desolation, tramped the roads of his holy Judea. If we take it to be true that he walked in the cool of mornings and the breeze of evenings among Adam's children, who were at no special pains to hide their transgressions from him, or to put a gloss of piety on the good they did, and that he saw them sometimes comfort the lame and welcome the outcast, as people will do, then surely he rejoiced in them, and in the innumerable good he intended for them. Still, every day was like any other day through those thirty years, miraculous and God-haunted as the world was in the beginning, is now and ever will be. The Lord is near. We know not the day nor the hour of his coming, because he is with us always, every day, and every hour. We can rejoice in the Lord, because he first rejoiced in us, and because he has put his mighty blessing on every gentleness we offer one another. Let our gentleness be known to everyone. If there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, let us think about these things. They are the joy of God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Our God-Haunted World, a guest essay by Mary Lynn Robinson of the Iowa Writers Workshop. For books this week, I review Paula Fredrickson. The title is Sin, the Early History of an Idea. Princeton University Press, 2012, 209 pages. Paula Fredrickson is the Aurelio Professor of Scripture Emerita at Boston University and Distinguished Visiting Professor of Comparative Religion at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. She's best known for her studies in ancient Christianity, and in particular for her, for her emphasis on the Jewish context of the historical Jesus. In fact, she's also a convert to Judaism from Catholicism. This book originated in her 2007 Spencer Trask Lectures at Princeton. It's a technical book written in an academic style, even though it's intended for a general audience. And she admits that it's about the ideas of sin rather than the tragic existential experience of sin. The three chapters of the book explore the dramatic mutations in Christian ideas about sin in seven thinkers in whom we see what she calls evolutionary jumps, disjunctures, or flashpoints. Chapter 1 considers Jesus and Paul. Jesus' mission was almost exclusively to Jews, and so he understood sin as violations of the covenant and Mosaic law. Paul, ministering to pagan Gentiles, construed sin as idolatry. Chapter 2 considers three Gentile theologians of the second century, Valentinus, Marcion, and Justin Martyr. Chapter 3 then examines two of the most brilliant thinkers in the entire history of the Church, Oregon, Origen, and Augustine. For Origen, all will be saved. For Augustine, all should be damned, although in God's inscrutable will, a minority will be saved from what he called the mass of perdition. In a short epilogue, Fredrickson's summarizes this staccato history of early Christian ideas about sin. She then considers contemporary applications to American culture, lamenting how we downplay human agency and responsibilities with our excuses and explanations. We might admit to mistakes, but rarely to sin or sins. We're happy to get therapy, but can't imagine the repentance that Jesus invited with his announcement that God's kingdom was at hand. And on the last page of the book, she concludes with the obligatory scholarly trope that her main point is that all ideas about God, sin, and redemption are culturally constructed and understood by historically embedded human interpreters. And so she concludes, quote, 
Historical context arbitrates meaning. At the end of the day, however defined, sin suits its time. The author is Paula Fredrickson. Sin, the early history of an idea. For film this week, we go to Israel in a new movie called The Flat from 2012. When the filmmaker Arnon Goldfinger's grandmother died at the age of 98, he had to clean out her flat in Tel Aviv. That was no small task since she had lived there for 70 years. Much of her stuff was summarily crammed into plastic garbage bags and tossed. Other items were taken by family members or sold to collectors. But the material things bespoke a personal history. Goldfinger knew almost nothing about his grandmother except one tantalizing tidbit. She was a Jewish immigrant from Nazi Germany who proudly maintained her German identity. All her books, for example, were German. Then he finds a commemorative coin with the Star of David on one side and a Nazi swastika on the other. With considerable detective work, Goldfinger pieces together a bizarre and unsettling story of how his grandparents had a deep friendship with a high-ranking Nazi and his wife, not only before the war, but even after the war, and this despite the fact that his great-grandmother was murdered in the Holocaust. What to make of it all, especially with his mother Hannah, who says she knew none of this history, and even after learning about it, she says she is uninterested and unmoved. We didn't ask, and they didn't tell, she explains to her son, Arnon Goldfinger. A fantastic movie, which I highly recommend. It's called The Flat. And finally, for the Advent season, we've posted a poem by John Donne. John Donne lived from 1572 to 1631. The title of the poem is Annunciation. Salvation to all that will is nigh. That all, which always is all everywhere, which cannot sin, and yet all sins must bear, which cannot die, yet cannot choose but die. Lo, faithful virgin, yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb, and though he there can take no sin, nor thou give, yet he will wear, taken from thence, flesh, which death's force may try. Ere by the spheres time was created, thou wast in his mind, who is thy son and brother, 
whom thou conceivest, conceived. Yea, thou art now thy maker's maker, and thy father's mother. Thou hast light in dark, and sheddest in little room, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. John Donne, Annunciation. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December 23rd, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.